Good evening, uh, and welcome to the Institute for Government. My name is Nick Davis, and I'm a programme director here. Thank you very much for joining us for it's going to be a fascinating discussion on the role of the Department for Transport in a modern railway system, uh, which has been very kindly supported by the Rail Delivery Group. It's a particularly opportune moment to be discussing this topic. Uh, last year, the government established the Williams Rail Review uh, to make recommendations on the organisational and commercial structure of the rail industry going forward. And the review is due to publish its uh, analysis and its recommendations this autumn. One of the key questions that they are going to have to address, and indeed that the government is going to have to address, is where should power lie? To what extent should decisions be centralised uh, in the Department of Transport? Should subnational transport bodies like Transport for the North be given greater powers and responsibilities? Should government get out of the way and leave more of it to the market? And who should be held to account when things go wrong? Um, I'm delighted to be joined today by three fantastic speakers to discuss that. Um, first up will be Lillian Greenwood, uh, the MP for Nottingham South and the Chair of the House of Commons Transport Select Committee. Uh, our second speaker will be uh, Baroness Susan Kramer, uh, Liberal Democrat spokesperson on the Treasury uh, and the Economy, and between 2013 and 2015, Minister of State at the Department for Transport. Uh, and our final speaker will be uh, Paul Plummer, the uh, CEO of the Rail Delivery Group, which represents the rail industry, uh, including passenger rail, freight rail, uh, network rail, and HS2. Um, each of the speakers is going to make short introductory comments. Uh, I'm then going to ask a, a couple of questions from the chair, and I'm then going to open it up to questions from the audience. Uh, I'd encourage those here and watching at home to tweet about the event using their hashtag uh, IFG infrastructure. And so with that, I'd like to hand over to William. Um, thanks very much for that uh, introduction and thank you uh, for giving me the opportunity to be here and what a packed out audience, which is great. Um, so before I actually give my opening remarks, it does occur to me that there are a few uh, things that are uncertainties uh, at the moment. So I'm just going to put them out there um, and you can think about them while we're talking. The first is, of course, this uh, review was commissioned uh, by Chris Grayling of Secretary of State uh, for Transport. And with all the uncertainty about what's going to happen over the next few weeks uh, and months, I suppose there is a live question about by the time Williams uh, reports, or by the time this turns into, uh, the potentially turns into a government uh, white paper, will Chris Grayling still be the Secretary of State for Transport? Will there be a white paper in the autumn? we might end up in a general election. Could that be in July? Could it be in September? I don't know. Um, and even the idea, well, will there be a department for transport? Because I've even heard of amalgamations and a new department for infrastructure. Um, I, just, I just preface my remarks with saying there's quite a lot happening at the moment which could knock everything uh, off the uh, agenda and make things turn out in rather a different uh, way than perhaps we anticipate uh, now. Anyway, having said that, let's just assume everything stays broadly uh, similar. Um, so the rail network, I, I think it's pretty clear, is an absolutely vital uh, national asset. And the trains 
the train services which operate across the network are absolutely essential uh, public services. They get millions of people uh, to work, they enable us to visit our friends and family, they transport students to schools and colleges and universities and they connect people to a range uh, a whole range of services. It's therefore absolutely essential that we have a structure that puts the right people in the right places to make the right decisions about those services that enable people to go about their everyday lives. Now, the fragmented way in which the rail network is currently constituted means it isn't always clear who has made those decisions that determine what services are available, how well they're run, and there's a question about precisely what the role, what role the Department for Transport has. Now, I'm sure everybody in this room already knows the next three bullet points I'm going to make. First of all, you know that the physical infrastructure of the railway in Great Britain is owned and managed by Network Rail, an arm's length body of the UK government. Passenger train services are provided by 20 different franchised operators, and most of those franchises are specified by the UK government, but not all, and that's important. And the majority of passenger trains are owned by private rolling stock uh, companies who lease those trains to operating uh, companies. The DFT sets overall rail uh, policy and strategic objectives. It lets and manages the rail franchises, and it makes the decisions about funding, whether it's for infrastructure or the subsidies which lots of services rely on. Now, when I picked up the notes that had been written by my uh, by the office who support the transport committee, it said, and the department is responsible for procuring new rolling stock. And I'm thinking, I'm sure they wouldn't say that. They would say that that's the role of the rolling stock companies in consultation with the franchise operators. But we all know the department has a really important role in deciding what rolling stock is procured. And some might say too much of a role in deciding you know, whether they should have flip down tables or not, or what the seats are like, or whether they're comfortable enough. So just put that out there. Um, but to passengers, you have to think, what does that structure look like to them? And the truth is, I think, when things are going smoothly, when you turn up to the station and you get on your train and everything goes well and you get where you wanted to go uh, on time and, uh, and, in a re and everything runs quite nicely, you don't really think about it. But of course, on a daily basis, passengers will face disruption for all sorts of reasons. It might be about signal failures, it might be about staff shortages, it can be about bad weather. And when that happens, it's not always clear to passengers who's responsible uh, for those things. And you know this, if you look at, spend any time looking on Twitter and who's going to get the blame at any one point, it probably isn't the person who's actually responsible for it. And, but that's fair enough because all passengers see is, oh, my train's delayed, my train's cancelled, who, who's responsible uh, for that? And at the moment, I'd suggest that passengers' confidence in the rail network is not as high as it should be, and their level of trust in whoever is running the network isn't where it wants to be. If passengers are to have confidence in the rail network, services have to be reliable, and people have to know that someone will take responsibility when things don't happen as planned. And at the moment, I'd say that isn't the case. So how's the department doing? That was one of the questions we were asked uh, to set. Now, in recent times, uh, my committee scrutinised the department's 
decision making in several aspects of the railway. We looked at the cancellation of uh, plans for rail electrification because basically uh, costs had got out of control. Uh, we've looked at the failure of the intercity East Coast Rail franchise and we looked at the chaos that followed last May's rail timetable uh, changes. And we produced reports on all three of those subjects in 2018. Uh, and the inquiries took a significant proportion of our work. I think that in itself is an indication that there are issues with the way in which the railways are run. I was quite keen as the new chair to get away from examining the railways, but we ended up doing quite a lot of it because things were happening that required um, some scrutiny. And I think possibly the most concerning problem about the uh, issues which plague our rail network is that we've stopped regarding them as exceptional. We've kind of got used to uh, a rail network that doesn't quite uh, deliver. And I think that does raise questions about the department's role, about governance of the industry, and about accountability uh, for when things go wrong. So at the moment, I'd say the big conclusion from our work is that as currently constituted, the rail network isn't delivering or it isn't delivering consistently and reliably enough. So franchises are at risk of failing or not performing to the standards that passengers have a right to expect. Fares are absolutely baffling and passengers often think they're not getting good value uh, for money and promises of rail infrastructure improvements are all too often not delivered or not delivered on time or don't bring benef equal benefit to all parts um, of the country. So that's a bit of a negative sort of start. I apologise um, for that because there's lots of good stuff that happens in the rail industry, but there's not enough of it or there's too much of the stuff that isn't quite right. And I think, you know, the government was right to, um, to, to commission a review of the structure of the rail uh, industry and ask Keith Williams to bring forward uh, recommendations uh, for reform. And I also welcome the comments that Keith made when he said that all options are on the table. It's right that it's a root and branch uh, look at what's necessary. And I think it's important, significant and important that he said his job is to bring forward recommendations for government of whatever persuasion to take forward. And that's probably, maybe he was thinking ahead about the possibilities of things not being quite as it started out. Um, but I think if we're going to be successful, or if he's going to be successful, if a white paper is going to be successful, the first thing is to decide what are the public goods that we're trying to uh, achieve. And, and Dan Shirley of the Campaign for Better Transport said, if you're not clear about what the railway must achieve, then you can't choose a model to follow. That's the situation we're in at the moment and why we need to have agreement on who the railways are operating for and why. And I, and I couldn't agree more. Um, and when the Williams Review reports, it will be for politicians to decide what structures will best achieve the public goods that the railway network is for, but we need to decide what those um, are. Now, I do feel like I might have cheated you a bit on uh, things like, what's my view on, the, on privatisation versus nationalisation or devolution? But the truth is that my committee hasn't taken a view on what the answers to those um, questions are. I'm absolutely sure that the committee will want to question Mr Williams uh, about his findings when the review uh, comes out and we'll be really carefully and we'll be carefully scrutinising how the department implements his recommendations or indeed whether the things that he recommends are the things that make it into the department's <coughs> white paper because it is a slightly uh, strange setup to have a government review 
with an independent chair. And I, I'm not sure that we're going to see two separate things, which is William's report and the government white paper. I think it's going to go straight to a government <coughs> white paper. So I think there's a question mark there. But ultimately, it is going to be the government who are, who are held responsible for the success of the rail network and the problems which befall it. And I think that's true um, whether the government has defined precisely the way that the network will operate and, and delegated functioning to a mix of public and private bodies, whether it takes an active role in managing rail services or whether it kind of delegates it, is government ultimately are always going to be questioned, um, not least because uh, of the funding uh, that they provide into the network and the decisions about the level of funding because of course that's so important to determining uh, things like investment infrastructure and also levels um, affairs. I do think it's incumbent on the government to take forward the recommendations that Williams produces um, in a way which will prioritise passengers and taxpayers' interests that will improve government structures and improve accountability for the network as a whole. So at least that passengers know that when things are not as they would like them, they know precisely who to hold accountable. Brilliant. Thank you. Uh, there are brilliant people in the railway industry. Many of them are probably in the room today. And I'm afraid I'm not going to talk about you brilliant and good people at all, because I do want to talk about the system. And uh, to, uh, from my perspective, a large part of it is frankly dysfunctional. Uh, so the system that we have was essentially designed for an era when rail was in decline and thought to continue to go into decline. That the governments of all shades were absolutely mesmerized by the capabilities of the private sector. It was the answer to every problem. That, uh, and there was an expectation that even a highly fragmented, complex structure could be managed through contracts and penalties. It was a system designed by lawyers, and I think we're paying the price of that today. And if you look at the rail network, the demands on it today, relentless growth in demand, a far from decline. Sustainability and greening, absolutely now central on the agenda with the concerns about climate change. Infrastructure, finally, and rail, particularly recognized as key in economic development and in achieving the rebalancing that we need in the economy um, across the nation and the nations. Innovation and technology, huge opportunities now, but requiring also great investment and real complexity, both in designing and delivering them, that, uh, but having potential to increase both capability and, very importantly, also capacity. That's a bit, to me, one of the biggest changes is the attitude of passengers. I think they now look at the whole journey. This is language that we never heard back in the days when this system was designed. But most importantly of all, you see it picked up by Williams, but it didn't come from Williams. The customer expects that they should be right at the center of all transport planning and arrangements. And that is the perspective from which they look at the system. So how do we go about reforming this? Well, we are where we are. I don't think any of us would design the pleasant system if we'd given a blank piece of paper. I am concerned that it's very hard to rip up what we have today because it's a bit like trying to operate on a, a runner who is running a marathon while they're actually running it. And the railway has to function in every way from day to day. And that means I think we're looking at relentless and consistent step change. We've got to achieve change, but I think we've got to be very careful that we don't think we can do it by ripping the system apart. I find that sad, but real. 
we have got to reduce fragmentation. I mean, this is just a nightmare, quite frankly. And I think the pilot in Wales of linking the operator and the track, you know, is, is a very interesting pilot that we'll have a chance to look at. Aligning interests. I've never seen an industry in which every player essentially has a conflicting interest, pretty much. I mean, to me, it's insane that the business case for a top has, is largely based on getting penalty payments from network rail. And if you look at these franchises, they deliver something like a 2% profit margin. But topped up by the penalties from network rail, you begin to hit something rational like 6%. Now, I mean, who thought this up and then expected everybody to line up and work together? I think we've got to explore different ownership <coughs> structures, but I, you know, I'm not going to be, uh, 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 I think this is an area where we have to look and where we may often have horses for courses public benefit companies, potential um, ownership by regional bodies. We might look at concessionary rather than franchise arrangements, but I think it's going to be a very mixed economy. And in that practical step-by-step -step change, I think we're going to have to see variation. And that means it's going to be very acute decision-making on how we do all of this. Engagement, I think, with regional bodies, you raised that question, Nick, absolutely key. And I think you've got to fund all of this. So we've got to go back to giving the system access to the capital markets. And there are other things like land value capture and opportunities that we haven't looked at for the kind of massive that's, uh, um, investment that is required. I think it's absolutely key that we limit the Department for Transport to a sort of overarching strategy role. And that can include coordination with other modes, tying in with national economic goals that are um, seeking realistic levels of, uh, of, of public investment and setting that kind of public investment envelope. But the micromanagement, it is hopeless coming from DFT. You shouldn't be asking a government department to do that. And I think we need to face up to it. Doesn't have the expertise, doesn't have the capacity, it doesn't make any sense to me. And so I suppose in a sense, in place of that role, I'm moving into the camp of setting up a sort of central body. Um, uh, with my colleagues, we've called it something like a railway agency, but with real expertise, pull in parts of DFT, the rail delivery group, network rail, the TOCs, the Roscoe's, regional bodies, the rail part of the ORR, and create a body that can pull together and coordinate all of this, and then gives them some genuine powers to redesign franchising, to consider things like concessions, pilot different ways to align interests and get some genuine coordination, removing this constant sort of conflict that exists throughout the system, looking at issues like regional devolution. I think that body should be deeply engaged in planning investment, but also in looking at how innovation is going to develop, how it be used, how it can be paid for, how it can be delivered. It ought to be the body that decides on how you're going to deploy rolling stock, I, I'm one of the few people that seems to think it's not funny that we're getting loads of unused trains sitting all over the place. I mean, what is this? Uh, so, um, using the regulator piece to regulate safety and all of those kinds of things. But I'd want that body to take on ticketing and fares. I mean, what a nightmare. I was in uh, um, at the by-election in, 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 in uh, Brecon and, and Radnorshire over the weekend talking to a lady who can get from her local station um, which is Clydrindorg uh, Wells to Gatwick for £27 if she does split ticketing. 
She's well over 100 if she buys a single ticket. I mean, you know, what is this? Come on. Birds are, and people are used to, birds are smart ticketing, birds are, we need to move into the modern era if we're going to meet customer expectations. And I would also give that body the capacity to operate um, the equivalent <coughs> of the door. I mean, there are going to be times when whether it's a concession or a franchise or a piece breaks down, and there needs to be a step-in capability. I've never understood why we didn't have that on a permanent standby basis, and I don't think it ought to be embedded in the department. I think I could see it in this new body. So that's where my thinking is taking me, and I would be really glad of the thoughts of everyone here and, uh, 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 and the input from the room and beyond. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Um, so first of all, um, there's a huge amount of agreement in terms of everything I've heard so far. Uh, one thing uh, I think is absolutely right, as Keith Williams has done and, and both Susan and Lillian did, is start from well, actually what's the railway for. Fundamentally, it's for customers, it's for enabling our economy, it's for uh, improving the environment uh, and a critical value for money to taxpayers as well as customers. So I think we have to start uh, with that um, and then design uh, an industry that can enable, enable those things. Um, uh, which is fundamentally what the review is about. So first point in relation to that, um, I do passionately believe that we need to enable politicians, elected politicians, to make the decisions that only they rightly should make uh, about the big long-term issues about how how much we want to invest in our railway, uh, what are the key outcomes we want from the railway. I think those are decisions that only can be made uh, by elected politicians. I think there's a question about how much of that is devolved from Westminster um, to Scotland, Wales, to other city regions as well as London. I think that's a big question that um, we need to enable choices around that. Uh, so it's not just uh, uh, decisions in Westminster but other uh, devolved bodies and I think that's, that's clearly key in terms of direction. Having got that, however, I absolutely clearly of the view that we need some uh, organising body, an arm's length body, uh, whatever we want to call it, that can depoliticise a lot of the next level of decisions. Uh, so not naive enough to think that uh, we can depoliticise decisions about the railway, they're in a political environment, but we need to enable those decisions to be made by experts uh, so that it can uh, make it work rather than in the way it is at the moment, which becomes very, very quickly uh, very political at too much of a detailed uh, micro level as uh, Susan referred to. So some form of arm's length body I think is key, bringing in decisions from national government and devolved bodies, whatever they are, uh, to join that up, uh, enable that, that future. Uh, actually running the railway critically has to be uh, locally has to work locally, has to focus obsessively on those local customers, people using it, be they passengers or freight. Uh, so the arm's length body has a critical role in aligning the parties, whatever they are, and I think the mix and match you describe is, is exactly right, however it works locally, but you have to get alignment of track and train locally, uh, focused on the customer locally, and you have to have that working as part of the system. The arm's length body, or whatever we call it, has the role in doing that, but actually it's those local teams be the infrastructure, operations, uh, the, the moving assets, the trains, focused on the customers. And to do that, we need different forms of contract that, ha that we have at the moment. So the current one-size-fits-all franchising solution needs to change. In some parts of the railway, uh, a concession model works, works really well, can work really well. So where you have uh, uh, choices in a city region between different modes of transport, uh, democratically elected people in those cities making choices about some of those trade-offs and then specifying quite tightly what you want from the railway. I think that can work extremely well. London Overground, great example of that, but more can be done. In other areas, 
actually you need to have the local teams running the railway uh, enabled to make more trade-offs, choices, innovation. Uh, so more outcome-based contracts are what's needed. Uh, so you've got different sorts of contracts for different <coughs> markets where customers have more choice or where they have less choice. And in some markets as well, do we want to have real competition between operators? Uh, that's perfectly possible. We need to decide that and we need the arm's length body uh, to uh, uh, coordinate that and make sure it's working ultimately uh, for customers. Uh, and then I'll highlight one more um, change which, however we organise ourselves, uh, we do need to make decisions about, and uh, Lillian described it as baffling, Susan described it as, uh, as a nightmare at fairs. Uh, so we have to take this moment, however we're going to organise ourselves, uh, to make difficult decisions about reform of the fair system. Um, part of the reason why it hasn't changed over many years is because it's difficult, uh, but strongly believe we need to confront that. So we've set out our proposals for what we think should be done there. It has to start with the underlying building blocks of the fair system. It's a great example of uh, where we need to do some, something more radical rather than continue to fiddle and paper over the cracks. Uh, that's an important decision. Other decisions need to be focused on customers and our proposals uh, set out the building blocks for how we can think that can, can be made to work over the coming years. Thank you. Brilliant, thank you. Um, I'm just going to ask uh, two quick questions. Uh, one of Lillian and one of Sue picking up on some of the comments that you made. So, um, Lillian, conscious of the need to not ask you to go beyond what the <laughs> committee has already said, um, you mentioned um, three issues, kind of electrification, franchising, and kind of timetables mm. where there have been problems in recent years. In those cases, would you say that the, a cause of the problem or a main cause of the problem was that DFT had too much responsibility for those, too little responsibility, or is it an issue of capability and capacity? And if, if the last, was that a ministerial issue or a civil service issue, do you think? I mean, I think, it, it's, I think in each case, it, it's, it's about a mismatch between the what information you need in order to make decisions and, and, and clarity about who was making a decision. Um, so on the, on the timetable um, chaos, it was clear, I, I don't for a minute think that probably the only person who was capable of making the decision to stop the timetable thing from going ahead, change from going ahead, was the Secretary of State, but he didn't have the information in front of him in order to make uh, that decision and decision making was far too diffuse it wasn't clear who could have uh, made those decisions and I, and I, I think some of those there's a cultural issue as well within uh, the rail industry of everybody thinking it's going to come right we're going to work I mean which is a good thing you know people were really committed to trying to iron out the difficulties um, and make it come right on the day but therefore there was a failure to kind of recognize when actually we're not going to manage this. We need to take, uh, you know, at an earlier stage, there could have been an opportunity to, uh, to step back. Another, uh, on the intercity east coast, um, I, I think there were there were failings within uh, the department uh, around the front about, around the letting of the franchise, but also a failure to kind of properly join up what was happening in infrastructure and what was happening in operations. Is there were there were requirements within the franchise. That, weren't cap that the infrastructure wasn't capable of delivering. And at that point, Network Rail weren't being asked to comment on whether that what was being specified was actually deliverable. That seems to me incredible, actually. So it's almost like there's just too much for them to understand what it is. There wasn't enough clarity about what was being required and where the decision-making um, lay. And I think, essentially, yes, that does come to uh, a capability issue. Uh, within uh, DFT, but it's about accountability. 
Great, thank you. Susan, so I'm really interested in the idea of a, an arm's length body and mm. kind of the Institute has written a lot on kind of the role that kind of evidence-led, expert-led bodies can, can play in these types of roles. But obviously the, the challenge is always kind of the political accountability and, and thinking of a, a similar body in this field, particularly uh, the National Infrastructure Commission, clearly that is expert-led, evidence-based making decisions, but it's set a remit by central government and then the, the decisions are ultimately left to government to make. But we do see this body having more kind of executive day-to-day decision-making powers and therefore what happens when something goes wrong and I presume it's going to be the, the Secretary of State who's on the Today programme trying to explain it. Well, uh, two things. No, I wouldn't use the Infrastructure Commission as a role, uh, as the model for this. But uh, I think we're bringing on the bodies that actually are sort of doing the dirty every day that uh, and getting them engaged in the public body, and I think that's critical. Look, you asked a question of Lillian, and maybe it helps answer this one. That, so why did so many of these things go wrong? Culturally, people never speak truth to power. They never do. So nobody stands up and actually tells you what the cost is they're going to be running the damn franchise. They try and win the bid and then sort of fix it. But uh, Network Rail is not honest about what on earth it's going to be able to deliver because it's sort of afraid of being treated as a wimp. But uh, um, you look at, 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 at the timetabling, there must have been dozens of people within the industry who knew this was a walking disaster, and none of them opened their mouths to the right people. You know, it almost looks like whistleblowing and whatever else. I mean, I see this over and over and over again. Crossrail. I mean, for God's sake, how could that have been a surprise that that was running something like two and a half years late? But, um, I mean, I, I had something of a transport background. I swear if I'd walked through those stations, I'd have simply said, excuse me, well, where are we? But, uh, um, so I, these things are often obvious, but it's not coming through. Now, if you've got a body that is genuinely of the industry, it... First of all, it knows if it's getting a sham message. It knows what questions to ask. It knows where to explore and where to push. And I think there's probably a mutual respect and lack of fear that means that you can have conversations between people who are really out there on the ground and a body like that that has the expertise. So I think we can deflect many of the problems by putting that body in place. I mean, in the end, Government is always accountable, but frankly, I mean, if you're a politician, your life is having eggs thrown at you, so, you know, get used to it. But, uh, um, and you will be considered responsible even if you aren't. But uh, I think if you can get most of the problems dealt with by being absolutely transparent, you know, by having real clarity, but uh, um, real awareness all the way through the life of, of projects and when services are dealt with and taken, you know, then for the politician at the top, a system that's working, that's the biggest bonus you could ever have. Because if it doesn't go wrong, you don't have to answer for it. Paul, do you want to add anything to those thoughts? Um, I mean, I'd agree with the Lord for already saying. I mean, deflecting uh, many of the problems, to, to use that phrase, I mean, uh, th what this organising body, arms body uh, needs to do. I mean, I think it, it clearly needs to have the capability 
Uh, it, it also needs to be able to look across track and train and align track and train, however that's organised, uh, rather than being looking at part of the system. Uh, it needs to be independent of the political decision making at high level, but also needs to be independent of the implementation of those on the ground uh, by the people running the train services or managing the infrastructure. So I think those are key principles, I'd say, that need to be there in order to enable it to deflect a lot of those pressures. Yeah, I do think you have to have on that body the kind of public groups that, uh, that will make sure it's not captured by the industry as a sort of tool to be misused. I mean, you do have to be aware of that yeah. in the process. But I think that is manageable. Great. OK, I'm now going to open it up to questions from the audience. Can I please ask that your questions are short, uh, that they are, in fact, questions, uh, and that you say uh, your name and where you're from when asking them, please? Um, I'm going to take uh, these two uh, gentlemen at the front first. Thank you very much. Um, some very thoughtful remarks, many of which I would agree with. Um, my name's Ian Taylor. I'm the policy advisor to Andy MacDonald, the Shadow Secretary of State for Transport. Um, I'd just like to look further ahead. We talked about immediate structural discussions. And my question is, how does the government lead the process to achieve a 40-year vision for the railway? We don't have that. I think we would all agree. We ought to. And we are in the absurd situation at the moment that we don't have a vision that actually tells us which part of the network is going to be electrified and <laughs> before we've bought new stock that will life expire after that. And so my question is, um, I don't think it's just, I should say, a question of setting goals or outcomes, both of which are terms that have been used by um, Lillian and, and Paul there. Um, I think one needs to look a bit beyond that. So I'm interested in how the government leads that process. And I do agree that the railway company, as we would have it, needs to be at arm's length, more at arm's length than it is at the moment. <coughs> Great, thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Imran Khan. I've worked for AS Advisory. I advise shipping and logistics industry. I have uh, three short questions. Very, very short. <laughs> very short. Um, first, um, the panel didn't talk about the freight trains. Uh, you only focused on the passenger transportation. And uh, um, how do you um, how do you plan to uh, to, um, to to cover that part? It's also very important. Uh, second, uh, you didn't talk about environmental issues. Uh, I think uh, the automotive industry has been shaken by the environmental issues by the clients, and the clients are demanding more environmental friendly solutions. How do you uh, plan to cover that? The third question is particularly to Ms. Greenwood. Um, who do you ask for advice when uh, um, while doing your work uh, on monitoring the uh, Department of Transport. Thank you. Great, so that's uh, four questions for the price of two there. Um, <laughs> so how does the government lead the process to develop a 40-year vision? Uh, what about freight, uh, environmental issues, and who does the committee seek advice from? Oh gosh, where to start? I mean, I think, Ian, I think that's a re it's a really interesting question, and I think one of the, one of the problems um, in, is this is an industry, particularly where you invest, is you are investing in things that last for decades. And that doesn't really lend itself to either, well, it certainly doesn't lend itself to short-term political um, decision-making. And it does link to Imran's question, which is about environmental uh, issues. So one of the biggest challenges for the rail industry is probably one that we don't talk about nearly often enough, which is how do we ensure that people travel by rail more and by car less? Um, and 
I think there's an over there's a much bigger question for government which is not just about the railway or even to do with transport which is what do we want our country to look like in 40 years time and particularly what do we want our towns and cities to look like uh, in 40 years time and I suppose you know in, in saying in terms of Williams is before you can answer the question you have to define the question and, and that actually ought to go to part of the question which is what do we, what, what are we aiming for um, and, and in a way I don't think we, we tackled environment because um, because there's already there is already a policy uh, around that whether we like it whether we think it's adequate or not which is the government has set the challenge of well I was going to say decarbonizing the rail industry by 2040 but actually it's removing diesel trains from the rail network uh, by 2040 and for some reason diesel trains doesn't seem to include bimode trains at the moment but which are, personally I find baffling um, and that's something that our committee is specifically looking at at the moment it's, it's subject to a live inquiry trains fit for the future so we're very interested in the role that uh, the railway can play in the environment and I absolutely think you know that we should be thinking further ahead what what do we need and, and what, how do we ensure that we deliver that and obviously rolling stocks are a really important part of that um, I'm glad you mentioned uh, freight because it often does get um, neglected and I think part of the discussion sometimes forgets freight in, in thinking about the solutions. Now I think Keith Williams, although he often talks about passengers, I think he recognises that it is actually about customers, some of whom are passengers and some of whom are freight operating uh, companies. And I think their frustration is that, particularly when you talk about vertical integration, is in some parts of the network that isn't it's perhaps you know easy to see how that could operate where you could have the you know the person responsible for the infrastructure and the operator of services if not the same body then very closely aligned obviously on those parts of the network where there are numerous different sorts of services fast intercity short commuter services and freight that starts to look like a less good um, option because you think well freight are always going to lose out to passenger and on the and those part and those sort of services like cross-country which cut across different parts of the network how, how would they fit in with um, a sort of more vertically integrated network and I think that's where where the question of vertical integration becomes quite uh, difficult in terms of the your final question which is probably the most straightforward of the uh, of all of them um, which is where do we go for advice so when we when we announce an inquiry when we're looking to take evidence is ev all and everyone can submit evidence uh, to our committee and we've heard from generally uh, in terms of the work that we do we will hear from academics who've got a particular interest in rail and transport we will hear from operators we'll hear from government from senior members of uh, all the organisations we've talked about, network rail, train operating companies, uh, from ministers, from officials within uh, DFT, from innovators and entrepreneurs, everybody. Uh, and of course, very importantly, from those people who use the network, inc including representatives uh, of passengers. So, and, and sometimes we'll have a special advisor if, if the work that we're doing is particularly technical, but basically, um, the world and his dog are very welcome to send us evidence and obviously we we do receive a lot of evidence from a wide range of groups but Ian I think obviously you need vision but I say that with caution because if we were to look back 40 years ago and say what is your vision for the railways the answer would have been close them but uh, 
So, you know, that's, uh, you've got to be really careful. 10, 15 years ago, nobody was really worried about decarbonizing rail. But uh, only recently have people started to click onto the fact this, this impacts regional economies in a very forceful and, and sort of core way. So um, I'd like to see visions built from, from, from local up, quite frankly, as well as some of the top-down stuff and the integration of modes. But it's got to be flexible. And you can't constantly, you know, you've got to allow for visions being wrong and being adaptable and being changeable. You can't turn them into immutable blueprints. So that means allowing stuff, mistakes, changes of view, and whatever else in that whole vision system. Yes, I mean, that's, that's one way to put it. But I think it, it, it has to, I like, I, that's uh, rolling stock, rolling vision, what the heck. That's <laughs> uh, so, um, freight. Can I say, Richard, I mean, yes, we didn't mention that. I mean. Like, to me, the, 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 the horror of, of, of the UK system is that we're running long-distance commuter and freight all on the same rails, and I've no idea how we get around it, other than things like HS2 to get long-distance off, and there has been discussion of trying to get dedicated freight lines. But to try and mix this complex combination and get maximum capacity, I mean, boy, what a challenge. If you've ever stood by a railway line with people from any other country you care to name across the globe who's an expert on rail, within minutes, they're clutching your shoulder and trembling because they've never seen stuff like this happening <laughs> that's across the same set of rails. And I, you know, congratulations to the people who manage it, but it is extraordinarily difficult. And I think we are going to have to make some longer terms, some really serious about modal shift for freight, for example. <laughs> Uh, it's going to be very hard if we're doing that with the growing demand for passenger services. So I think we're going to have to make some bold decisions, frankly, within that area. Um, but uh, one of the things I would say, when I, when I was first sort of, when I was around the department, the phrase modal shift was a really big one. Now hardly anybody talks about it because, frankly, modal shift is being pressed by business and by ordinary passengers. They don't want to drive those wretched cars. They want to get on a train. And virtually every business I talk to is bemoaning that there isn't a rail service that will deliver what they need and they've got to put stuff onto trucks. So, um, you know, it's going with the flow, but how we deliver the capacity is going to be very, very challenging. Some of those questions can be answered by DFT, but only if there's practical input coming from the industry, quite frankly. Oh, um, the last line there is key. So, practical input from the industry, but somebody has to bring, bring it together. I think an arms length body can play a, a big role in that. Uh, I, I think the, the strategy has to come from the bottom up and, and, and the top down. It has to meet somewhere in the middle. I think it has to, you can't do it all at once. Uh, so there are elements of it, and then you need to keep reviewing those elements. Are they consistent? So uh, the freight one is, is a great example. So we have set out what we think could, could should be a freight strategy. Key part of that is, is freight operators and their customers need stability. They need certainty. Uh, we can't keep reviewing that and expecting it not to have consequence, uh, even if we end up deciding the same thing. Actually, the fact of reviewing it causes uncertainty. Uh, it needs to be able to work across the whole network in a joined up way. Uh, vertical integration presents its challenges, but actually it's one network from their point of view. I think that's really key. Uh, in terms of environment, um, uh, absolutely, uh, getting to zero uh, carbon or zero diesel uh, is it, surely 
uh, the railway has an important part to play in the big carbon agenda, but surely we need to deliver our product better in, in using less carbon. And uh, we used to have a strategy of electrifying more of the railway. Uh, we revisited that. Now we've challenged the cost and got that better. Surely we now need to revisit that again uh, as to how we're going to take that forward. So I think there are elements of the strategy we need to keep reviewing and keep joining it up because it's, it's the bringing it together at the, the whole picture, I think, is key. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff out there, be it about freight, be it about digital railway, be it about uh, environment and, and, and fuel sources, the elements of the strategy that we need to keep testing and iterating so we've got a coherent whole uh, and, and say, well, actually, what is it we want to contribute to cities, uh, to the rebalancing of our whole economy? Those are the really macro questions and iterate the, the, the top-down macro with those bottom-up elements. Thank you. Uh, just quickly, re a rolling 40-year uh, vision. Uh, I strongly recommend the Institute for Government report on how to build a national infrastructure strategy for the UK, which might have some helpful thoughts. Um, right, I'll take a couple more questions. Uh, firstly, the lady down here, and then the gentleman in the white there. Thank you. Emma Taylor from the Rail Safety and Standards Board. I'm a lead system safety engineer. So I've heard about the discussion about railway agency and arm's length body. And naturally, coming from the safety organisation, it was founded on the basis of some quite significant rail crashes. My question is based around how safety will be ensured. Now, it's key that there is sharing and open and trust around safety incidents and near misses. So that must happen in any new form of body. My question is really, what are the benefits that you see for this new railway agency configuration versus the current one? And what are the blocks? And uh, in the white, uh, in the white shirt there. So I realise white shirt doesn't help yeah. narrow it down much. <laughs> uh, thanks, everyone. My name's Adam Parkinson. I'm an op operations supervisor from within the industry. Um, question for the panel: I'd love to know your viewpoint on market liberalisation as a solution on some aspects, particularly the long distance sector. Um, the reason I'm asking that is you look at the freight sector, which um, is is what we would call true open access within the industry, um, and arguably it's flourishing for the end customer. So I'd like to know your thoughts on that as well. Great. Okay, so first one on kind of safety and the interaction with the new arm's length body, and the second one on market liberalisation, particularly on the long term, long distance routes. Uh, so um, that's a safety. I, th I mean, I think everybody in the entire industry is incredibly proud of the safety record that the industry has achieved. And that's a credit both to the industry and, frankly, to the relevant regulators. Uh, so, um, but I think their voice needs to be there in this separate body. I don't think safety should sit aside as a separate operation. I think it has to be part of the absolute core. Um, and particularly as we're going through more and more change, when you think of we're moving to things like onboard signaling, you know, the digital railway, I mean, the safety issues are going to be absolutely paramount in a whole lot of that. So you need to make sure that that thinking is deeply embedded in the entire progress. And of course, here, the ORR is also a, an economic regulator. And there, I think it's been put in an absolutely impossible position. I mean, trying to work out who owes whom what, when frankly, all that means that, that, that you've got two sets of people absolutely at each other. But, uh, so I think we can, through the new body, try and protect the things that are really effective and important and perhaps eliminate some of the others. Um, now, so the other question, I now just slipped my mind and I was 
market liberalization. Market liberalization. So um, I, I, what I don't want to do is make this a deity. You know, the answer to everything is market liberalization. There will be circumstances where it's entirely appropriate. As you say, it seems to be working pretty successfully in freight. There's been an awful lot of consolidation in freight, though. You know, we start out with loads of players, and then all of a sudden, you look around, and uh, um, everyone's buying or selling each other and whatever else. But, uh, um, so I think you've got to be really realistic about it. I think, as Paul said, there are places where open access uh, and competitive arrangements can work, but not if they're based on cherry picking. So. You know, third, uh, but they're going to be very specific circumstances. And I, I, the concession model, if you like, is a highly competitive one because you can lose your concession. But, uh, but uh, um, the whole risk profile is very different from the franchise profile. So I really think this is going to have to be horses for courses. And I'd like it to be used where market liberalization actually solves a problem rather than because we think there's some inherent virtue in market liberalization, and that comes first. I'll turn it round. Okay, horses for courses, great phrase. We keep using that phrase. I think we really need to mean it, because um, uh, we, we say it and conclude it, and then we tend to force ourselves back to doing the same thing in different places. Uh, I really do think there is potential for more competition on some parts of the railway, but we should be honest that it isn't most of the railway. It's the long distance business and leisure market where you could have more of that open access type competition, other sorts of competition elsewhere. Uh, to your other point, absolutely, we shouldn't be thinking about safety as an extra or different thing. Uh, it's fundamental to the whole system that it's infused in everything we do. Uh, I think we made big strides in terms of safety culture in the last few years and uh, in terms of people being able to talk openly and honestly about issues. Uh, obviously, there's a really tragic incident last week. Uh, I can't not sure mention, mention that because uh, that really was a terrible uh, incident. Uh, and we need to keep improving everything we do rather than thinking about safety separately. Uh, obviously, when we're talking about change, we need to make sure change doesn't lead to unintended consequence and test that properly. Uh, but that shouldn't be the, the, an obstacle to change. We need to do change well uh, because it's about improving all aspects of how we deliver, be it punctuality, efficiency, value for customers and taxpayers, and safety. all goes together uh, if we deliver that well. Um, I'm not sure there's much to add to what people have already said. In terms of, in terms of safety, it's clearly that has to be a, a top priority. Is one of the, you know you look at how did we get to the current structure that we've got? Well, we went through some very painful times, and there were some very serious accidents. So you don't change you change that at your peril. Is we have um, you know an extremely uh, safe railway. Not there are still issues, particularly uh, around uh, track workers, but. But generally, uh, that, that's something that the, the UK Railway is getting right. I think the ORR safety role is incredibly uh, well respected. So I would be wary of changing things that are working well. Um, so don't, don't, you know, don't lose that importance, the importance of safety and making that a top priority. And don't put in place structures that might lead to compromises in safety uh, or safety decision making. In terms of um, market liberalisation, part of like how did we get here in the first place um, is let, let's I mean genuinely I hope that Williams has looked at all the options and it's right and you should look at extremes of options whether that's you know everything run in the public sector or everything market liberalized and decide what's the thing that's going to deliver the best outcome for passengers taxpayers the freight industry 
what, what's going to deliver. But I suspect in our very capacity-constrained railway that a more liberalised um, market is not going to be what gets the best um, what gets the best out of our system. But I'm, I hope that Williams has been prepared to look at all options equally and decide what does he think is the best structure. And is there a single outcome or is it horses for courses? I suspect. Um, it, you know, the different parts of our railway, there, there may be different options that will be the best way of getting the most out of it. Great. Uh, two more questions. Uh, I think we'll take these two on the front here. Thanks. Greg Rose from Newington. Um, two of the most popular uh, pieces of our rail uh, system um, seem to be um, HS1 uh, and um, Grand Central. Uh, what lessons are there from their popularity, besides the fact, obviously, HS1 is newer than a lot of other things, uh, in terms of the way that they're, they're run and operated, um, that, that could help with wider application? Uh, Vicky Price from the Centre of Economic and Business Research. Um, we didn't really want to talk about renationalisation or anything like that, but if, if as Susan, you're saying, uh, the experiments are bringing uh, to the track, running the tracks, and also uh, the operators closer together. Does that actually already lend itself to a particular structure, which does mean, uh, more or less, um, it all being run by the possibly by the public sector, even though there may be occasions, particular areas where you can do something slightly different. Great. Okay. Um, so that's one on lessons from past projects, including. Uh, HS1 and another one, kind of whether the system in some ways lends itself to public running. Are you looking at me? Yes, I am sorry. That's, uh, so, on the first two questions, I've been sort of long enough in the industry that I, I'm not going to be very accurate on this. I mean, my sense of HS1 was gifted, it's got, it's got some dedicated track, but uh, boy, does that make life easier. But, uh, um, uh, um, and with Grand Central, I'll, I'll tell you honestly, I always thought it had bloody good management. But, uh, which makes a huge difference as far as I'm concerned. But other people may know much more detail to try and give you a sense of why some pieces work uh, uh, and, uh, and some don't. And sometimes it's just that what you're facing is so much more complex and difficult. And it never hurts to have a really good management team in place that works well with its employees. Uh, so on the, the renationalisation, I mean, I am very aware that people are always saying that we internationalise the railways, and I do point out that network rail is nationalised, uh, um, and yet many of our problems comes, come out of the whole sort of network rail world, not because they're bad people, but because the task they've got is just hideous, and trying to get money is impossible, and uh, squeezing out of government, and all of those various kinds of things. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, and the incentives for the top to work with them are absolutely not there. If anything else, if you're a sensible top and you want to make money, make sure you put as many, many obstacles in the way of network rail as you can possibly think of, because your income will go up. Well, I mean, this is just nuts. But, uh, um, so I can see bringing them together. I, I mean, I think there are structures that are worth looking at. I really much believe, very much believe in the public sector and the private sector working together with their strengths. And the term public-private partnership is really tarnished by that absolutely appalling structure that was put in place for the tube, and I spent much of my life trying to fight before it collapsed under its own weight anyway. But I, I do think you, you know, things like public benefit companies, joint ownerships, 
um, uh, relationships that pull various parties together into the common cause. I think there are lots of ways of trying to do it where you bring both together. And a very, very narrow example. So when I was at TFL, uh, if you looked at the DLR, that is a classic example of the public sector and the private sector working together. And when you'd go into the offices at DLR, you could not tell who was paid by the private company and who was paid by the public company. They were so integrated as a team. So I think there are really intelligent ways you can do it, and it's probably much easier if you do it on a local or regional level than try and do it on a national level, because then you reach people. Billy? Um, well, the first thing I'd say is I don't think it's terribly easy to compare franchises and go or, or indeed open access and go well like th well those ones seem to get high passenger satisfaction ratings therefore they must be doing something right because of course if you're hs1 and you've got a new track which frankly doesn't suffer some of the problems that the victorian infrastructure suffer you do have rather an inbuilt um advantage and i think you know some rail passengers are obviously going to be easier to please than others or or have different value different things so if you're predominantly serving leisure passengers for whom punctuality is not a big issue because they're kind of going off someplace. They might be more willing to be 10 minutes late. If you're serving a busy commuter market, then they desperately need to get where they want to be on time. So I think different, you know, different um, franchises are looking for uh, different things. I think we should learn from all of the successful franchises and indeed where the things are not going uh, very well and, and Paul earlier picked up Overground or you could look at uh, Mersey Rail as well is what works well and I think some of it is about a, an attention to uh, to detail it's getting on top of problems when they start to go wrong I suppose it is it does come back to well managed well managed and I think that, you know for DFT managing franchises as opposed to letting them is something that I think is more challenging and perhaps the devolved structures have been better at managing um, franchises. Um, in terms of that question about um, uh, about the alignment between you know between track and, uh, uh, and train is I think there are some more general issues which is that if you have different people doing different things is, is make sure that they're pointing in the same direction in terms of what they're trying to achieve and how the and what their outcomes uh, are and and you know i just think part of the difficulty of the system is it all becomes focused on contractual you know on contractual issues rather than on thinking about the end users um of the of the of the network and that has got to be one of the the biggest weaknesses of the current structure um, is that you can become so obsessed with arguing about you know light responsibility uh, for delay or contractual interfaces rather than thinking about the, you know delivering the actual product cool. um, so in terms of the uh, example about HS1 and Grand Central and we've mentioned a number of other really good examples where things work well absolutely the point about management I think is key but the, the real lesson there is it isn't one size fits all everywhere different models work in different markets, they all require good management, um, but different models can work very well uh, if we get them aligned properly to those markets. So I think that's the, the point I keep coming back to. Uh, in terms of uh, alignment to track and train, absolutely, however we organise ourselves, we have to align track and train locally and it has to focus on customer. Um, I'd say that if you don't, if, but if you put them into the same corporate entity, actually it doesn't give you all of the options we're talking about, it, it limits those options. If, if they're, they're separate, 
then you can decide, well, actually, we want this to be a really tight partnership, a really integrated track and train single management team in some places, <coughs> in other places. Um, uh, uh, you can say, well, actually, we need an arrangement which enables freight, which enables open access, enables, which enables uh, public or private sector operators to run trains on, on the infrastructure, uh, but separate. So I think uh, it, by having the distinction, uh, you can create, you must create alignment, but you can have different options, horses, of course, for different markets, so that we deliver the best for customers. Thank you. Um, we don't have time for any further questions, so I'm just going to ask each of the panellists to make um, very short uh, final uh, comments. And Paul, I haven't given you any notice, so I'll ask you to make comments last. Uh, so perhaps if I um, start with Lillian. Um, so I think the, the so thank you first for, for organising and thank you for um, the questions. And, and I imagine there might be a bit of discussion uh, afterwards as well, so I hope, I hope we can do that. I think the, the most important thing is about rebuilding trust in the rail uh, industry. I think in, in recent years it has it has dissipated and, and if we face one challenge overall it is as a country it is about how, the, how do we keep people moving, how do we regenerate our cities, how do we tackle um, the environmental challenges uh, we face both in terms of carbon and in terms of uh, pollution and I think the railway has an enormous part to play in all of those things but we've got to build trust in it and we've got to be able to give people the option of travelling by rail and for it to be affordable um, and, some, and some of those decisions ultimately are always going to be political decisions because a lot of it will come down to how much money do we as taxpayers want to invest uh, in our railway not, and not just in our railway but how much money do we want to invest uh, in public transport and what sort of country do we want uh, to be. Um, so we can't expect Williams to answer all of those questions or to solve all of those problems um, but I think he's, by sorting out some of the basics in the industry I think he can help us to start on a, a road to being able to rebuild the trust that's been lost. Well, um, we all come from rather different starting points but I, I've just been fascinated by how similar our thought processes have been about how we move the railway forward and I have a feeling we're picking up that from a lot of the questions as well and I can't think of anything more hopeful and we're all moving on to the same ground and I think there is a general consensus this has to be centred around the customers and what they're trying to do it has to accommodate regional and economic development it has to enable greening to take place but we have to tackle the problems of fragmentation of misalignment in, uh, in terms of interests um, and we, we don't have to live with the sort of D, uh, the, the DFT type decision, micro decision making structure we've got today. We can find ways to engage the industry, the expertise and to get people to work together to achieve the goals that at the national level and at the regional and local level we all want to achieve. So I come away being very hopeful and I think I also hear a buy-in to changing this step by step to recognising that it will be a sort of mixed economy, that will be looking for solutions specific to particular geographies and particular problems. And we're not trying to go the master blueprint direction. And I think that would have been fatal. And I hope that Williams reflects all of that. Oh. Yeah. Uh, so likewise, a huge consensus how, how critical the railway is uh, for our economy, environment, uh, people who use it every day. Uh, huge consensus about the fact that the challenges we face today are different to those 25 years ago uh, and to meet those challenges we, c we need to change uh, aspects of which we can't carry on as we are 
Uh, huge consensus about some elements of that, uh, be it around some form of arms next body or be it around uh, different, uh, the mixed economy, your language. Uh, so a lot of consensus around those key building blocks. Um, and I'll come back again, finally, fairs. We must achieve fairs reform. <coughs> Brilliant. So with that, I'm going to bring it to a close. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, and thank you to the Rail Delivery Group again for supporting this event. Um, I hope that you'll all be able to join us for uh, drinks on the landing. Um, but before we enjoy those delights, I hope you'll join me in giving a round of applause to our three speakers today. Thank you. Thank you.